Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the seventh Sunday after Trinity. It comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. I will read that in the English Standard Version. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they sent them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanutha. I guess I went too far. You read an extra verse. Yeah, and I didn't have yeah. to stumble over that word. You didn't have to say that word, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe it's going to be another one of those days, Dave. Um, <laughs> I hope not. Uh, okay. Um, so context, what's going on? Well, this seems to be the turning point structurally in Mark's gospel. Uh, Veltz brings that up. So this is comes after a series of miracles, but this is kind of the point where the opposition against Jesus intensifies and also, in some sense, the beginning of the mission to the Gentiles becomes more explicit. So that's the kind of big difference between this, the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 is that the feeding of the 5,000 is to the Jews, and this is to the Gentiles. So that's the kind of context, I think. Because right after this, you're going to get some some open hostility as well, the Pharisees demanding a sign and so forth. Is there any sense in which the disciples' question um, is different in the feeding of the 4,000 than the feeding of the 5,000? I think it's, I I was talking with Ramirez last year about this, and he had found some examples where, you know, mostly I think we preach the feeding of the 4,000 just like the feeding of the 5,000. You know, the disciples still don't get it. Right. Um, and, uh, but there's no rebuke right here. You'd think that he would rebuke them about their faith, uh, but he doesn't rebuke them. And one of the commentators, one of the old commentators, focuses, old Lutheran commentators, focuses on how. When they, when the disciples ask this, um, they ask it in such a way to say, like, how are we able to do this? Um, the grammar indicates in, I think, Matthew's gospel, it's how are we able to feed this? In the sense, the way that Peter says, uh, to whom shall we go? Like, you're the right. words of eternal life. Do you think there is a difference in 
in the feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000 that the, the, the disciples recognize that they are not able. And so they ask, how are we able to do this? And so Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? And then he does it. That he's asked, yeah. that the disciples are asking the, uh, the Lord to do it because they recognize their inability. I think there's something to that. I don't think they're quite all the way there, but they're starting to catch on. They haven't forgotten the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah. It seems like, right, how can anyone satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness, right? There's, um, it does seem as though it's a setup, right? Mm-hmm. For him, you're the only one that can do this. And then there is that these people thing too. It might be that their question is sort of, well, you did this for the Jews, but these aren't Jews. Ah, okay. Are you going to give them manna in the wilderness? Uh, That doesn't see. So it, I think, I think Ramirez is right. There's something going on here that their response is better. They have grown. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I would say they're not, doesn't seem like they're quite there, but their response is better. It does seem to me though, that they want him to do it. They don't quite want to be involved. Right? <laughs> yeah. How can anyone do this? Well, they, it's sort of a setup question. You can do this. You did it before, but are you going to do it for these people? And you don't need us. And mm-hmm. then Jesus sort of throws it back on them. Well, what are you going to do about it? How many loaves do you have? And there is the, he is going to use them. And then they're also used again for the distribution, though it's, it's different. They're not, they don't set down in groups of 50 like they did you know, the organization of Israel under Moses, but they are told to recline. I love this to recline on the earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that, that language, like, you know, the Romans reclining down for a feast, but then upon the earth. So I think the number is important too. Of course I would. Right. But the, the seven, as opposed to 12, I think is hugely significant and 4,000 as opposed to five. So, of course, 12 and 7 are both combinations of 3 and 4, but 7 is a prime number and 12 isn't. Mm-hmm. 7 is, I think, indication of the older order, creation and God combined, and that's the way the Gentiles come in, right? Yeah. That we're going back to the older order. So, so you want other, to say something? Yeah, so in other words, um, whereas the feeding of the, the 5,000 you know, five is a, a, a Pentateuchal number, and right. and twelve is obviously twelve tribes, so it's very Israel focused. This Absolutely. is creation focused, the days of creation, um, and then you know the uh, the four thousand the the day that the earth was made. They're told to sit on the earth. That this right. is more all-encompassing, even though it seems less. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Well, this is a number of completion, and I think 12 is a number of expansion. So I know this is like really getting into the number stuff, but seven, <laughs> seven plus four is the totality, and three times four is a multiplication. So Israel is going to take over the whole earth, right? And all the believers are going to be encompassed into that. But here is, so completeness as, as opposed to multiplication or expansion, the, the four corners of the earth is, again, the family, all this is more foundational. So mm. there's definitely something going on there. Yeah. Um, 
Those baskets, by the way, according to Veltz, hold 50 loaves each. It's a, yeah, it's a different it's a word here. Word. It's the, I think yeah. this is the word that, that is used to let down St. Paul in oh, the basket I didn't know that. outside the, the that wall. That makes sense. So it's big enough for a human to get in. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's particularly a Roman word. So again, kind of emphasizes that Gentile hmm. aspect of this miracle. So it makes sense. That's the basket that he was let down in. Okay. I know All the right. numbers are fun in this for sure. Do you ever preach uh, oh, on the numbers? I never have on this. I think to mm-hmm. my, I think I've always probably just preached this very much like I have the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah. But I, I, you're, you're the one that always brings up that this is the Gentiles and the other ones, the Jews anyway. Yeah. That's one of your favorite things. Yeah. And, and I think well, it's right. And, and I just think we need to, it's not the same thing. Yeah. No, I, that's fair. I'm hundred percent fair. Yeah. I love this. Uh, here was a nice, I picked this up from Veltz and I can't believe I never noticed it before, but this beginning of this in those days is actually a loaded phrase and Veltz tries to prove that on the basis of its use in uh, chapter one to start up the first part of the book and then a little bit on the Septuagint. Uh, But what Veltz probably doesn't know is that this comes liturgically to us as well. Mm-hmm. That we follow here, at least the introduction of each reading in the re- when we read the lessons in church. There's a formulation for how you start the reading that's given, and uh, I've, we've put this up on Godestines before, so you could find it if you wanted. That it's in Lamburn, and it probably exists in other liturgical books. But the Old Testament books normally start with "in those days" mm-hmm. because it is an Old Testament phrase. And it is a loaded phrase, just like the epistles normally start with brethren, if they're written by St. Paul, and they're written to groups of people. So that in those days really does have that ring of prophetic significance, Mm -hmm. that what's going on here. And then the idea that this would be, it is a repeat of the feeding of the 5,000, but because it's to the Gentiles, it is showing that they get the same blessing. Yeah. Right. That the eschatological goodness and abundance of God's mercy is also extended to them. Mm-hmm. And maybe that these people in the in verse four with uh, the disciples, that could be slightly derogatory. And in what way? Well, I mean, anytime we say these, those people, right? Who's going to, I mean, these people. Okay, gotcha. It, it sounds a little bit. It's a little bit. It's a. It has the potential. I'm, I don't know for sure, but I mean, you know, in that context, it kind of has this, at least, coloring that it could be them going, uh, you know, this is great, all these things you're doing, but who's going to feed? Right? Can anyone feed these people or satisfy? Can anyone satisfy these people with bread? It's funny too how bread is the bigger thing in both of them. Because I think if I was there, I'd be more focused on the fish, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I'm not. If I go to a uh, if I go to a, a pastor's conference and there's a fancy dinner, and I go home and tell Jackie about it, I never tell her about the bread. <laughs> 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 I mean, it, it's uh, it's not you, the bread that's that's the show, right? Right. So that's I think do, I think that is significant. Not only that it's the staff of life and you know the historical context, but that but that Jesus Himself is for showing. You have the Eucharistic stuff in here too, 
So if you jump down to whatever it is, oh yeah, verse uh, eight, no. Oh, there it is in uh, verse six, right? So you have uh, three heiress and then an imperfect that he, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and then he began to give it to his disciples to set, to set before them, that's a strange phrase, and then they to set before the multitude. Hmm. So you have that, you know, that fourfold action, which is pointed out by, um, who's that guy? Who's the big scholar that just quotes? Oh, all Dom the time Gregory Dix. Kind of, yeah, thank you. The fourfold thing. He he uh, right. He takes. He gives. He th- he he takes. He breaks. He gives thanks, and he distributes. Mm-hmm. Right, and that give thanks, of course, here is Eucharisto, and then you have the fish. He blesses Eulogeo, and then mm. sets them also before them. It's weird that he said. It's weird that that repeat of setting is weird. I don't understand that. He gave it to his disciples. It seems like it should just go, and they set, you know, them, the bread before the people or the crowd. But I don't know why that setting before them that they might set it before others. I, yeah. Is this a... a uh, Hebraism or something? Yeah, or a term that is used in the Passover to be set well, before? Well, they gave it, I don't... I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's a redundancy because he gave it to them and then setting it before them is just giving it to them. So it's a redundant phrase. He gave it to them, to the disciples, to give to them. No. That they might, I mean, you could you could translate that, that first set before as give again. That's what I'm saying. That's what it means. Yeah. So I don't know. It's some kind of redundancy. Um, but anyway, well, he the gave it to the disciples is, so that the disciples would set it before the people. Correct. Except that there's an extra, except that it says he gave it to the disciples, set it before them that they might set it before. So that's what I mean. There's an extra. No. Give and set before. Yeah, there's, it's in there twice. It Look, says, uh, and he gave <laughs> them to the, his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd. Yeah, he gave it to the disciples to set before them. Oh, you're saying the them is the crowd? Yeah. He gave it to the disciples. To set before the to people. his disciples and then in order just... to set them, and they set it before the crowd. I, I thought that this paratisosin, tis, tithosin, sorry, um, I thought that was setting before the disciples. So, so he, you're saying six. he gave it to the disciples. Yeah, I'm, he, he, he gave he it to the disciples to and set. gave them the seven loaves to his disciples to set before the people. And but you're they, only translating one. Oh, and they set the them they before set the crowd to the crowd. Yeah, yeah. So it's just it's just indicating that okay the purpose for which he I gave was, it, and then I'm just translating it wrong. I think so. Wouldn't be the because first because it's time. subjunctive. the The verb there that they is might subjunctive. He gave them to his disciples to set before them the crowd, and yeah. they set them the bread before the crowd. Right. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I'll take that correction. Yeah. This is what happens That's when you only use pronouns. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is a common phrase among my children. I don't know what you mean. You're only using pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> They want the antecedent. Yeah, t- I, I need to know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's right. 
All right. So anyway, the disciples are involved in this ministry and this distribution. And certainly there are Eucharistic overtones and um, insight that should be drawn from this. We should recognize this not as being the Eucharist, not that they received the Lord's body and blood there, but we should recognize this as the correspondence here. Mm-hmm that Jesus is showing us something of the Eucharist through this by the parallel. And that is, of course, that the Eucharist actually brings us into his kingdom, puts mm-hmm. us in his presence, satisfies what we actually are hungry for. Oh, yeah, I wanted to bring that up. I think this is interesting. Uh, we all, we kind of skipped over this by accident. Of course, the compassion thing, we've made a big fuss about bunches of times in the past. And um, so that's that's great, but we've done it. Here you have, though, that he has compassion on them because they have remained with him three days and because they are hungry. Mm-hmm. And that's that's uh, an interesting, I think, twofold requirement to be fed by Jesus, right? You have to remain with him and you have to be hungry, right? Hungry for righteousness. And if I send them away, and this is the word for fasting, if I send them away fasting to their own uh, homes, and I like the translation, I think you had faint, I like that. They will faint on the way. They will fall down from weariness, mm-hmm. for some of them have come from afar. So so this uh, this idea too then that, right, when the bridegroom is with them, they are not to fast, uh, and they are to remain with the bridegroom. And I think it also seems like he's it's more positive towards the crowd, even though the crowd always, in my mind, has a kind of pejorative or hostile overtone to it. Um, They have remained with him and they are hungry. And those two things move him to compassion, to, you know, that splagnizomai. Yeah. And, you know, that compassion then is supposed to be shared by his disciples and you know their response, as we already said, is is better than it could have been. Uh, how can anyone satisfy these people with mm-hmm. bread here in the wilderness? Uh, they seem to be very aware of both the cont- uh, feeding of the five thousand, and I think maybe because of the feeding of the five thousand, very aware of the kind of mosaic, mosaic overtones, right, of bread in the wilderness. Yeah. And whether or not it's appropriate for these people. And then Jesus moves it to write, how many loaves do you have? Which is great because you're not getting out of this. He's not mm-hmm. doing this alone. He's going to use them. And he's even going to use their stuff. Is there, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Is there a sense in which this is just a demonstration to that, that of this great reversal that the Lord makes fruitful that which is desolate. Yeah. And that the disciples have to serve, these Jewish disciples have to serve Gentiles. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Jesus gets in trouble for eating with sinners. Well, look at, he's dragging them into it too. Did the Galileans have a big problem with even Gentiles, even though they were hated by the people in Jerusalem? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So you had these grades I mean, who knows of who the- hatred. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, sometimes, I don't know, but sometimes, you know, that kind of hatred will be worse because they're closer. In other words, you know, because they want to prove to the Jews in Jerusalem 
that they have the same enemies. And mm. but anyway, I don't know. But I think I think they definitely do. The Galileans think of themselves as Jews. Yeah. The the people in Jerusalem may not think of them that way, but they certainly do of themselves, right? Yeah. And and they could be harsher not only because of proximity, but also to to kind of give their Jewish creds in this regard. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um so what is so what's the theme? Like what is the the primary focus on this that God makes the desolate fruitful, that he um, has compassion. Is that what rules over all of this? Or that, you know, like that he sees our needs and wants to fulfill them? The, the yeah, bringing that in, we're in danger. Yeah. That remaining with Jesus for three days, right, which is, of course, not an arbitrary number, but to remain for with Jesus for three days has the consequences of making you hungry and unable to go home alone. I mean, there is this, uh, he's led them out there. Mm-hmm. And so now here they are where there is no help for them. There's no grocery stores. There's no way to get home and they need him. Mm-hmm. So I think, right, not only does he see our need, he actually exposes our need. Yeah. He doesn't just meet the need. It's not like you see your 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 child has you know eaten all of her carrots and you decide she needs some more and you put some more on her plate. Yeah. It, it, it isn't it's just, he isn't just providing. Yeah. He's actually exposing this. Yeah. They need to be hungry and they need to be hurting so that they would recognize what he gives and that he's so, the only one who can give it. So do you ever play this game with the miracles? What's the real miracle? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, so what's the real mir- miracle? Is it that they followed him for three days or that he provided uh, in the desolate w- wilderness? Or that the disciples go along with it, that the disciples yeah. hand over the bread they've got and then distribute it to Gentiles. Mm-hmm. I mean, so is that, it's a, kind is of that an avenue for, for preaching? Um, uh, there's more to this miracle than you think. It's not just the, the miraculous feeding. Right. I, it's never just, the miracles are never just a demonstration of power which I think is often the way that they're misconstrued, that, oh, this proves the divinity of Jesus, which, of course, it does. But that's never, Jesus is never really out to prove his divinity. It's kind of, that's kind of a ridiculous thing from Jesus' point of view, I think. It's like trying to be like us trying to walk around proving that we're human. I mean, this isn't really (laughs) a doubt, and anybody who would doubt that we're human, we just would sort of look at as stupid, right? Mm -hmm. So his purpose isn't to, well, I know. Now we're living in insanity where yeah, clown dolphins world. are more human. Yeah. But well, I mean, not the even point that. is, I don't think I mean, it's not to prove- we have humans <laughs> saying that they're cats and pretending yeah. to be and well, demanding and- that litter boxes be put inside for them. <laughs> this is real. I know. We live- I, know I know. It's <laughs> awful. It's just absolutely, it's just unconscionable. We're living in. We live in the wicked times. And don't give me this about, oh, it's always been bad. Yeah, sure, it's always been bad. But the Bible does say it will get progressively worse. And us noticing that's true mm-hmm. uh, is is accurate. And you telling me that it's always been bad does not mean that you're more sophisticated and more know, about the, know more about the past. It just means you're trying to deny the reality. 
So there. Yeah, it's a cope. It, it is getting worse. It is mm-hmm. getting worse, objectively. We, we can recognize that. It's not to say that we have it worse than our forefathers who suffered in their own ways. Right. It's to recognize that this is a biblical prophecy. Mm-hmm. Pray to be spared these last days because it's going to be terrible. Yeah. They're going to put litter boxes in houses and people are going to pretend to be cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, the, uh, there, <laughs> there's lots to clean up here after in terms them. of <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cleaning up after them. Well, mm-hmm. I don't think I am. All right. So preaching, sure. There, there's. Should we make sure that you know, they're the, spayed the or neutered? <laughs> <laughs> we should make sure of that <laughs> in this case. We don't want these people reproducing. Uh, okay. So. You, you do have the right the need to see the need. I mm-hmm. think that's an important thing you could bring up, right? It isn't ju- he doesn't just provide. They have to be exposed. They have to recognize the need and then see him as the provider because that's the that's what faith is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's also you could do, you know, you could do the sort of. The, I always think of this as being a liberal in the worst sense of the term, not the classic sense, but modern idea. But there is something to the fact that they participate in this, they hand over their bread, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there is a stewardship lesson in here or a a lesson in serving our neighbor and being compassionate. And that is, you know, something is better than nothing. There is Mm -hmm. a temptation to look at 4,000 people and say, well, I can't do anything about this. I only have seven loaves of bread. Mm. rather than saying, I can't do much about this, but I'll do what I can. I'll share what I have, right? So something is better than nothing. And that, or the perfect is the enemy of the good. Those are huge, important lessons for how we live our lives. You know, that's sort of related to Luther's boast about if he knew the world was ending tomorrow, he'd plant a tree today. That's the same idea, right? That our vocation is to help those in front of us and not to be overwhelmed by the enormity of the reality, but just to deal with what's in front of us. Look, there's 4,000 people here. You've got seven loaves of bread. You could at least start with that and give some bread to the people closest to you. It's better than nothing. Something's better than nothing. So I think, I think that's legit. Mm -hmm. And then to, you know, ask and expect God's blessing upon that and to wait and see what he will do. Yeah. So that's the, uh, that is a, our common response, you know. Well, we we can't help everyone, then we're not going to help anybody, um, right? And or I can't do it perfectly. Yeah. Yes, and and that goes to like a first principle thing. Like first principle is to do what you can. Yes. And yes. we often we often you know take the whole Gabriel Beale you know do what is in you and God makes up the rest, um, and rightfully, with regard to salvation, say that that's wrong. But uh, there is a sense in with which that is correct, right? Where he puts us in certain places to do what we can, to do what is in us or what we're able to do. Right. Okay. I mean, I always, we always get into this with the dogs licking the wounds of Lazarus. Was that an act of mercy or was it a, a sign of his weakness that he couldn't even beat off the dogs that wanted to lick his wounds? Mm. I, think, I think it's probably it was an act of mercy, that the dogs yeah. were more merciful than the rich man and that they were doing what they could. Yeah. That and even, even though that even the dogs recognize that this man should yeah. be pitied and, and they did. Com- and it yeah. did bring him some comfort. Yeah. 
I mean, that's how I, th- I, I'm, I wouldn't be dogmatic. I'm not dogmatic about it, but you know, to, to, to just be kind to people, mm-hmm. it's worth something. Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, you can obviously you can obviously preach this in a very allegorical way, and you should. Your favorite, the, but uh, <laughs> you know, the miracle should be understood as having spiritual truth, theological insight that we should apply. So there you go. That's what an allegory is. So the you know the Gentiles in the wilderness, right, hungry for manna, and also hungry for the promised land, and how can they be satisfied? with bread from heaven, and how can they enter into the promised land? Well, I mean, it's all there in Jesus and and in the ministry of the apostles. Mm -hmm. So the Gentiles don't get manna from heaven, and they don't get into the promised land apart from the church or apart from Israel, right? This is the ministry that God provides for this very purpose. You don't just walk up to the gates of heaven and pound on the door and say, let me in. The kingdom is also open for Gentiles. And I think there is a kind of humility. Would you want to preach this as this is how Jesus is bringing them into Israel. He makes them go into the wilderness just as Israel did. Then he feeds them just like Moses did. And... That like so he's not only the new and greater Moses for Israel, but he is now the Moses for all of creation. Yes, and these are these twelve these twelve apostles are the new are the new patriarchs. Yeah, of the twelve tribes, right? So, and which I mean, that's in the book of Revelation. So you have to be brought in that sense into Israel, mm-hmm. right? You have to be grafted onto the, a branch grafted onto the olive tree. And so you're being, that's the only way to come in because there's only one God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's, a, I think that would be a, I think that would be a really great direction to go in terms of demonstrating that, that, that there is a means by which you're brought in always. And that at the end of the gospels, then our Lord establishes the means by which he's going to bring the rest in. Right. And it's never apart from the history of Israel. Mm-hmm. You have to be brought into the, the history of Israel. So, uh, no, I'm going to forget his name. I think Pelican wrote that book, the companion volume yeah. to uh, the American edition called Luther the Expositor. And everybody who deals with Luther's Luther's exegesis or his exposition of scripture has to deal with the reality that Luther says allegory is bad, but then engages in allegories constantly, right? So how do you how do you uh, uh, harmonize those two things? Mm-hmm. And the way that Pelican harmonizes them is interesting. I think he's kind of wrong, but I I like it anyway. And that is that he doesn't. He says Luther doesn't think that he what he's doing is allegory. What he thinks is that the Bible is the history of the church, that the history of Israel is the history of every believer. And Mm -hmm. so that is the literal meaning for Luther. And that's why he can apply these things kind of so broadly and see all these lessons. Um, I think that, I think that what Pelican says is helpful. I don't think he's wrong. I I said, I I think it's, I think it could be better stated than that. I think that uh, actually, now I'm going to forget his name. His last name is Wilson. He wrote the four pages of a sermon book. He's, you know, who I'm talking about. What's his first name? P- 
Paul Scott, I think. Paul Scott Wilson. Oh, okay, right? yeah. Um, <clears throat> he wrote a book called God Sense, S-E-N-S-E. Mm. Um, that's, uh, what's the name? What's the subtitle? Anyway, that's a really great book. It's probably at least 10 years old now, where he kind of defends the fourfold exegetical method of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. And I, and I, I think he's, I think he's really he's on to something in that. And basically what he says is what you were taught at seminary about the fourfold method was inaccurate, exaggerated, which, you know, you hear that you're like, yeah, that's almost certainly true of everything I was taught at seminary about (laughs) other, other traditions and church bodies. So uh, I think he's right. I think he demonstrates it. He goes through and he examines Luther's exegetical method and Calvin's exegetical method. He's a Protestant, Mm. liberal Protestant, um, but uh, but he comes to this conclusion that I find very convincing, that Luther actually understands the single literal sense to really have a twofold reality, mm. the historical and the theological or the spiritual. That's what he's calling the God sense, so the kind of theological sense of the passage. Oh, okay. Uh, and he he draws this to Nicholas of Lyra. So Nicholas of Lyra is explicit that that's what he is doing. Yeah, that, that he's always operating in that way. And I actually found a quote, which apparently Wilson didn't know about. Uh, I found a quote where Luther takes that idea on explicitly and says, well, Nicholas of Lyra does this, and I'm not advocating doing that. But I think that Wilson's right that Luther actually is. He just doesn't, he's just not doing it. He's not conscious of doing it or aware of doing it. So, so anyway, I don't know why we're talking about that. Well, we Why were are we talking, talking about, about you know the 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 sense in which oh these the are history of Israel. And so so, so anyway, to, the point of that whole thing was treat them. this this being tied to though. So, so back to Pelican. So I like Wilson better in terms of harmonizing Luther. I think it, it fits better with my read of Luther. Seems more reasonable, but at the same time, I like this Pelican emphasis upon the history of Israel as our own history. Right, that that we have to identify that way, and we have to be grafted onto the olive tree, mm-hmm. and and so here I think now to be kind of allegorical, I think that's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. They're being brought out to the wilderness in order that they would be hungry, that they'd receive the bread from heaven by miraculous gift in abundance, and that then eventually they're brought into the promised land as citizens uh, and children of God. And so they're they're being brought into that, and this happens through the office of the ministry, and then of course is going to continue. So it, it's got a very it, there is an office of the ministry thing here for sure. Yeah, that Jesus doesn't feed these people directly. I mean, he doesn't set the food in front of them. Mm. So is you know your thing about how water wants to be wine? Does bread want to be broken and distributed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say probably would go once to, I'd say wheat wants to be bread. Okay. So I think all of creation wants to be under the dominion of man and useful to man. So I think cows want to be steaks Mm -hmm. and I think wheat, wheat wants to be bread. That's what it's, that's what it's meant for. And then, I mean, in that sense, right? Because in that sense, I suppose bread, all, all, all bread wants to be used for communion. I mean, that sounds like the, uh, you know, the trees want to be the cross that the donkey carries or remember that whole, mm-hmm. 
the whole thing that the tree that they that that wood that they made they made into the manger becomes the cross, and the yeah. donkey that carried Mary becomes right all that kind of idea. There's something I find I find those legends touching and yeah. not inappropriate. Yeah, no, I yeah, I, like I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, there's that one children's book that he's the manger and he's like, oh, I'm just a you know, I'm yeah. just a feed trough. And then it's like, oh, I'm just a boat. And then he ends up carrying right, Jesus in the boat. the boat. And then, oh, I'm just, you know, a crucif- you know, a, a cross. But, you know, I'm the, <laughs> it's just, it is, it is touching. It is. I love that in the, um, oh, sing my tongue, that line about the uh, side of the cross to relax its ancient vigor to the wood or, uh, Right, rig- or uh, ancient rigor, right? That is to be to become soft, yeah, and to to, to bow so that we might, uh, yeah. It's just a it's just a touching phrase uh, that one of my favorites in that same uh, always reminds me of that book. Whenever we sing that, mm-hmm. relax thy re- relax thy ancient rigor to be gentle to Jesus as he's dying for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. is there? Um, you always talk about how we need to engage our imaginations when we're reading the scriptures and we need to do that more and more. Uh, How do we inspire that in our preaching by uh, tapping into the people's imaginations so that they desire to do this as they read, read the scriptures that, Mm. that they're, how do we demonstrate it? How do we, um, it, it kind of invigorate their hearing of the word by how we're preaching is there a way to do that? I think there is because well, I, I think, think I've yeah. sat under sermons where I'm like, wow, I I want to read more about that. I want to engage and think the way, you know, when you listen to Carl and he takes one word and he spends 45 minutes going through all the places where this one word pops up. Right. Well, you could do that with the word Eucharist in this text mm-hmm. and you could compare it to other places the word Eucharist is used. Uh, that would be a, a fun way maybe to to preach on this. You could certainly fill in some blanks, you know, helping the people who are hearing this to think about, I mean, this is a multitude, right? A crowd of 4,000 people. So mm-hmm. that's a lot of people. Most of our churches are in towns that aren't that big. So mm-hmm. 4,000 people all together and no food and they're in the desert mm-hmm. and you know, now uh, there have to be kind of on the edge of panic, don't don't they? How did they get this far? How did they go three days and never say, I mean, it's right now 1045 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I've been thinking about lunch for a half hour already, right? So, <laughs> I mean, we just don't go that, we're, we're, we think about food a lot. You should, you right? should skip uh, lunch then. I should. The, uh, that, but this, you know, to think that they could go this far three days and they've run out of resources and it hasn't occurred to any of them to to do anything about this. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't even occurred to any of them to profit off it, which I think is also surprising because normally there'd be some kid that figured out he could sell popcorn at this and make a fortune, right? <laughs> when there's a crowd of 4,000 people and they're hungry this is an opportunity, an economic opportunity, and nobody. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. They've they've been like in a daze, um, and they've been, I think, not misled, but 
they've been taken advantage of in some sense. They've been led here deliberately. Their senses have been numbed. Their normal thinking processes have been clouded. So they got to this point of desperation. And of course, the truth is, we're always in that situation, but we're deluded about it. I, you know, I'm, I can sit here and think about lunch because there's food in my refrigerator and in my cupboard, and I'm confident that it's going to mm-hmm. be there when I go home. I don't expect a meteorite to hit me between here and home. And, you know, we make our plans for the future as though they were certain, as though they were trustworthy. And so I think, you know, that kind of, you can talk about that in a way that I think that engages the imagination and applies that I should be less confident in the future than I am, that I should be more aware of my mortality than I am, that I should be more desperate for God's grace and forgiveness that I come to the day of judgment cleansed and forgiven than I mm-hmm. am. Uh, you know, so I think another interesting thing is this wilderness. You, you know, you talked about doing the Carl thing. I mean, that whole wilderness motif. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scapegoat goes into the wilderness. Jesus is thrown to the wilderness to, to Satan. Yeah, And now, so that's where they're at, right? They're in the place where Azrael is, where the demons are, where the devil is, and they're starving, and there's no resources, and can anyone satisfy them here? Even there, mm. there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. Because Jesus is with them. I wonder if there's some some stuff about this paratithemi, like to lay before, to set before, to lay down. Um, hmm. You know, so he lays down the bread, which is his, but he lays down his body before them, like in front of them, not only for them, but if you're doing it before them, it's almost like in the place of them. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. You don't. (laughs) No, I'm just thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, I I would. Well, I was trying to think about this thing about, I don't know if this is true, but this, I've heard this about sheepfolds. I mean, that the actual fences around these sheepfolds, that there was no gate, but the shepherd laid, you know, uh, set himself in there. That's where he slept. Mm -hmm. So he blocked the path. I don't know if that's true, but it's not in the Bible. But the idea that he's the door, see? Yeah. But Um, I'm just like, in terms of laying down his life. So if the bread is his body, he's setting before that, he's laying down before them his body. Yeah. Well, yeah. So he's demonstrating what what he's going to do yeah. by his death on the cross, but then also demonstrating what, when the sacrament is instituted, what this will mean. Okay. <laughs> seems a little fetched to me, but it's, it always seems far-fetched when says, you come up with it. That's- <laughs> says, <laughs> says the one who's like, this is allegory. I know. <laughs> Well, I don't by allegory. I don't mean anything goes. It has to. It should make sense. I mean, what you're saying, what what you're saying fits with the analogy of faith. So, I was wondering if you could do something with the, um, you know, he sort of sets their need in front of them. Also, right? We said that 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 they're being exposed. So, even as as that, he's then also setting before them the solution in himself. Mm -hmm. The fact that they were they were remaining with him, that's still the way to go on, which is not obvious, right? I, we were been here for three days and all of a sudden we're hungry. And then we're like, I need to get back to the city for food. And Jesus is, you know, wanting to say, no, mm-hmm. stay with me, except that he sends them away. Yeah. It's also the yeah, word, I, like- I just was looking up, it's also the word used when um, accusations are made. 
about what has oh. been set, to lay before what the court or yeah to lay before or set before what someone has said. So, um, so so that might go along with what you're saying, but I, I, I'm curious: uh, is there is there a sense in which the the setting before them that he's demonstrating what he's already taught? Like it says they followed him for three days and he's been teaching them. And yeah. so is this a demonstration of what he has been teaching on? And what would that be? What was, what would his teaching be that he lays down his life that he what's the teaching? Well, maybe the teaching is just simply that he provides, right? The Lord provides as he provided again in the wilderness at the sac- near sacrifice of Isaac, the Lord provides and he provides in abundance and he provides the unworthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that. So ultimately, of course, right, the ultimate provision is laying down his life for the sins of the world, but that's not disconnected from all of the other providence, even of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about the fish? We haven't said anything about the fish. It's just I don't know what to small. make of the fish. It's just small I mean, fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, the fish... Uh, the fish almost seem out of place to me, but of course the they make a big deal about this. Of, of course, you know the ichthus acronym and all the fish stuff that comes up. Um, you know the f- fish jumping out of the waters, the resurrection. I mean, you got all this kind of stuff. The fishers of men. Yeah, I just was going to say that because that's the previous. Yeah. Two two weeks before this, Trinity five. So. I don't know. I mean, I've never, I never have made a big deal about the fish just because I guess I don't know how to or what to do with them. It feels like a afterthought almost. Oh yeah. And there's a few small fish here. Well, I'll bless those two and pass them out. And as I already said, if I'd have been there, that'd have been the part I'd have been focused on, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem theologically to be as, as loaded. And of course there are fish in the, in the feeding of the 5,000 as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's, just a matter of they get the same kind of food, the Gentiles and the Jews. Yeah. It's not it's it's not distinct in its in Well the you provisions. do have in what chapter six or seven the Syrophoenician woman. So let the children be fed first. Um so if the feeding of the five thousand is the people of is is Israel, the Israelites, yeah. then they've already been fed first, and so now he's gonna feed feed the dogs. Yeah, with the bread, with the crumbs of bread that that are his his bread, not the children's bread. Yeah, so here we there see a fulfillment of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I like that chronologically. That that works. The Jews are fed first, then the Gentiles. The gospel mm-hmm. does begin in Jerusalem and then go out. Yeah. All right. So, so what are you going to concentrate on, and how are you going to distinguish it from feeding the five thousand? I think I'm going to make a big deal of the fact that these are Gentiles, that this is outside of Judah, and then that whole thing about the the ministry and being brought into the history of Israel, even enacting it in a sense. So, mm-hmm. okay. How about you? Uh, I'm not sure. It's <laughs> a couple of weeks away. <laughs> so. Right, right. Well, I almost never end up. I have a few times, but it's funny. Whatever we say going to do, or I say I'm going to do it, seems like I almost never do it. I, I bet not even 20% of the time. By the time it comes, so much other stuff's happened, yeah. right? Now, that I would find be these conversations. 
that would be kind of fun to do like to track it. Yeah. To, so this is, this is what we said, like put it up on the blog. This is what we said. And this is what we preached. That <laughs> would be interesting. I, I mean, I find these conversations very helpful. I, so I'm not, it's just that, you know, right. Like you said, it's two or three weeks out. And so by the time yeah. it comes along, I'm thinking a little bit differently and stuff's happened. And mm-hmm. so it just, and I don't always remember what we've said either. Yeah. I, I will re-listen to some of these um, just to, to refresh my memory, what we, what we talked about as I'm doing chores and like, oh yeah, I remember that now. Most, most of the time <laughs> I, I look at my once. notes, but uh, often I'll just say, yeah, I'm just going to put it on real quick. And I put it on like one, one and a half speed. So it's going really fast. <laughs> oh yeah. Everybody's listening to, nobody listens to this at, one at regular speed. Yeah. I don't think I've only done that once. I did it recently because I was driving. I'd had a busy week and I was out of town and I was driving home on a Thursday or a Friday. And so the week was already gone. And I put this podcast on at one and a half and listened to it. And then I did preach that it was helpful to me. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I know we sound like we sound bad enough at normal speed. We sound really <laughs> like idiots at one and a half. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, any final thoughts, Dave? Of course not. All right. Thanks. We'll pick up next time. All right. Thanks, Jason.